If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In August 1897, the Belgian exploration vessel RV Belgica set sail for Antarctica, carrying intrepid scientists hoping to find the South Magnetic Pole and an ambitious crew seeking glory on the ice. What greeted them, however, can only be described as hell on earth. The ship became trapped in the ice for over a year, while afflictions that ravaged both body and mind began to spread among the crew. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, spoke to the author Julian Sancton about this haunting true story. So Julian, your new book follows the crew of the Belgica. Where is it that they're sailing to? They planned on being the first scientific expedition to reach Antarctica, uh, which at that time was uh, very little known beyond uh, a a few fragmentary coastlines. It left in 1897, commanded by a young Belgian aristocrat named Adrien de Gerlache. And it was a strange passion for uh, a Belgian to have such seafaring dreams. It was a country without much of a, of a maritime tradition, uh, no navy to speak of, a bare-bones merchant marine. Any young man with uh, adventure on his mind would more likely have sought his fortune in the Congo, the uh, morally fraught and, in fact, quite uh, abhorrent colonial project of Leopold II. Uh, and yet... Adrien de Gerlache was very independent, uh, and, and, and he was a dreamer, a romantic, who was taken by novels of polar exploration and, uh, and narratives of polar exploration, a fan of Jules Verne. And he thought that uh, there was no reason that he couldn't be the, the, the man to lead the much-anticipated first scientific exploration uh, expedition to the Antarctic. Uh, it was... At around that time, that all of the geographic societies of the world uh, met for a conference and decided that the exploration of the Antarctic was of the utmost priority. 
it had been about 50 years since the last serious expedition, uh, which was led by uh, James Clark Ross. And uh, that uh, since then there had there had been a few whalers, a few sealers, but no uh, no thorough expedition to speak of. And so it was quite a wild thought. Why not him? He thought. Why not Belgium? And uh, so they left. He and his uh, twenty five men, about give or take, because there were defections, dismissals along the way. Um, for the most extreme environment on earth and certainly did not know what to expect. And when he's selling this expedition and convincing everyone that Belgium should be the country to go and he's the man to lead it, what scientific goal does he give to make this mission more attractive to the public? Well, framing it as a scientific expedition in the first place was a way of selling it. At that time, science was often a uh, a justification for exploration, if not a pretext. It's it's worth reminding your listeners that the Congo itself was framed as a scientific project when in fact it was uh, a purely exploitative one. De Gerlache was uh, savvy enough to not only frame it as a scientific expedition, but also to tr- to try to get the backing or at least the support of uh, of the uh, the scientific exp- establishment in Belgium and and. Uh, really took seriously this this project of of cataloging the flora and the fauna of of the antarctic uh, as well as uh, understanding its meteorology the oceanography uh, and it it was it was almost entirely unknown this this uh, region at the bottom of the earth was was a, a blank in on world maps and so it, it drew these men in like a void so it was it was a pretty thorough scientific program i'm not sure whether that is what electrified the public i think surely the public was excited at the idea that belgium uh, was staking a claim to one of the the, the last uh, frontiers on earth i think what what the public was most excited about is the possibility that he might reach the South Magnetic Pole, which is not the same thing as the South Pole that we all think of. The South Pole is the the, the place where all the meridians meet and uh, from which all directions are north. The South Magnetic Pole is in constant flux. It's always moving. It's dependent on the churn of magma at the Earth's core. And there was a, it, it was believed to exist on the uh, Australian side of of the of Antarctica, so um, on, on the other on the other hemisphere, and yet it had not been reached, and so it would have been quite an exploit for him to attain that. And as it happened, uh, he never did reach it because there was there were too many delays along the way. There was a near mutiny. There was a grounding, uh, and then the scientists indulged their curiosity. When they were when they arrived at this sublime land on the Antarctic Peninsula and discovering a magnificent uh, stretch, a hundred mile stretch that now bears the name of Adrien de Gerlache, they took their sweet time as scientists do. Uh, in fact, these two goals of the expedition might have been incompatible: the idea of having a thorough scientific expedition, which takes time, and the idea of reaching this distant geographic goal, which requires traveling quite fast. And um, at the end, that problem was was not able to be resolved. And so de Gerlage, by the time he was trying to reach the uh, op- the opposite end of, of uh, Antarctica, it was already too late and the winter ice started setting in. And so he was faced with a choice, whether to turn back and admit that he uh, had, had not had much to, that that he had failed in his in one of his main objectives, and as for more money, which was already so hard to come by, um, he had barely been able to scrape together the expedition and the funding for it, and face the uh, the criticism of the Belgian press, which he feared uh, weirdly more than the Antarctic itself, or uh, he thought that he might pursue a southern route into the ice. In which case, he would almost certainly, the ship, the Belgica, would almost certainly be caught in the ice. And while he wouldn't reach the magnetic pole, he would be able to return home with something possibly even more precious than that, which is a fantastic story. And before we come on to his experiences of being trapped in the ice, which are so incredible to read about, um, I really wanted to find out a bit more about the crew because they're quite a colourful cast of people that ends up travelling with him. Can you tell us a bit more about them? 
Yeah, it it was framed uh, at first when he first conceived of the expedition. It was framed as an as a national expedition. Uh, the way he was able to uh, raise funds for it, and uh, which which required not only uh, some some uh, funds from the government but also donations from the public, was to frame this as a national expedition. Belgium was a young country. It had uh, separated from from the Netherlands only in 1830, so there were people in Belgium who were older than the country itself at that time. And yet, he had the hardest time filling the ranks of his expedition with uh, Belgians. The few scientists who had signed on, the few Belgian scientists who had signed on, lost their patience after he w- after he took too long to raise the funding and to get the ship. And so they they backed off. So he was the first people he hired, aside from his his best friend, who was uh, well-meaning but not particularly qualified, was uh, were two Euro- Eastern European scientists, a Belgian, uh, sorry, a, um, a Polish uh, oceanographer slash geologist named Henrik Arktowski and a Romanian uh, naturalist, zoologist and botanist named. Um, Emil Rakovica. And so already he w- he was under even more pressure to hire a Belgian crew. But as I mentioned, the Belgians did not have much of a, a, of a maritime tradition. And so the few Belgian sailors he was able to, to scramble together were uh, not necessarily the cream of the crop. They were you know, <laughs> a, a notch or two below pirates. Uh, they were an indisciplined bunch and uh, not in any way experienced with uh, navigation through ice. And so in order to f- get the, the uh, sailors who were experienced with, with uh, sailing in, in uh, polar environments, he looked to Norway, which is also where he got the ship, the Belgica. Uh, and so he, he, about half the, half the sailors were, were Norwegian. And uh, one of the few very good decisions he made in staffing was to hire a then unknown Norwegian adventurer named Roald Amundsen. Now, your your listeners may know that he was later to achieve global renown and if not legendary status for being the first to reach the South Pole in 1912 and uh, beating Robert Falcon Scott by a few weeks and making it all look uh, rather easy. Um, he, He... Amundsen, from a very young age, had foreseen this as if it was destiny and did everything he could to, to reach that, that uh, aspiration. He s- slept with the windows open in Oslo during the winter to inure himself to the cold. He trekked across the pl- plateau in the outskirts of Oslo that was a dead ringer for the Arctic and, and almost lost his life, entombed in snow. He uh, signed on to a number of... Uh, of uh, sailing journeys and, and uh, tried to to uh, learn all the skills he needed to be a polar explorer in the vein of his hero, Friedhof Nansen, uh, another great Norwegian explorer. And it was uh, lucky for Amundsen that Dergerlach uh, found his letter of, of uh, application and accepted it. But it's even luckier for Dergerlach that he found Amundsen, who was a modern day Viking at the age of uh, 25 and 26 was six foot two, uh, 200 pounds of, of pure muscle and, uh, just, uh, an unflappable resolve, uh, just an incredibly skillful adventurer, um, and, and arguably more suited to this than Dijerlash was himself. Um, and then, uh, one problem that bedeviled Dijerlash from the beginning was finding a doctor for this expedition. He had found a few, but the first um, had to, he, he, or rather his father dismissed because he feared that um, this first doctor was going to be a Trojan horse for the Royal Belgian Geographical Society and would uh, attempt to take control, to wrest control of the expedition from De Gerlache. And so uh, they came up with a pretext to get rid of him. Then there were a few other doctors that had signed on, but they begged off at the last minute. In fact, one came up with an excuse uh, saying that he was needed uh, to take care of his ailing sister. And this was the day of the departure. And so Dijerlash ended up leaving for the Antarctic 
with the, the most extreme environment on Earth, a, a, a deadly, uh, a deadly corner of the planet, with no doctor. And lucky enough for him, uh, one of the many problems that would uh, that would plague the ship along the way occurred right off of the the uh, coast of Holland. The motor conked out, and so uh, that enabled him to to or forced him rather to come back to Ostend for repairs. And in that time. He looked through the uh, various applications he got, and he saw that there was one from an American doctor named Frederick Cook, who had had experience in the Arctic. And as loath as he was to hire another non-Belgian, a Belgian, and and uh, open himself to the criticism of the press for uh, diluting the Belgian nature of this expedition, he knew that it was even more dangerous to leave without a doctor for the Antarctic, and so he told Frederick Cook to meet them in Rio. And that's how they came to have an American doctor. And this was the other great decision that Dejerlage made, even though it was uh, out of desperation. And you mentioned insubordination. And the accounts of insubordination in the book are quite fantastical at times. It's, it's kind of incredible how the Belgian shipmates really did hold it over their commander, knowing that he was so loath to get rid of them because of their nationality. And one of the biggest outbreaks is in Punta Arenas. Can you tell us a bit about that? Of course. By that time, um, Dejolash was not a natural disciplinarian. He was a retiring, uh, thoughtful, sensitive figure. And by that time, by the time they reached the Punta Arenas, which is the southern tip of, of uh, Chile, uh, he had already failed in many instances to discipline them. There, there had been uh, s- several uh, incidents in which the the crew brawled or uh, uh, brandished guns or uh, stood up to him or insulted him or insulted Amundsen. And he felt that his hands were tied. He felt that since it wasn't a military ship, he couldn't put them in in, uh, in shackles. He all he could do was kick them off the ship, but he was also loath to do that because if he kicked Belgians off the ship, then there would they would be um, a minority of Belgians on the Belgian Antarctic expedition. So he they they felt, as you say, emboldened by their status and ran roughshod over him, and in fact were shaking him down for money. Uh, they were they were shaking him down for shore leave and money, and and uh, he did not give them permission, and, but they didn't care. They they threatened to to just go to the press. And so he ended up saying, well, either um, I give them money and let them, you know, uh, let them gallivant about the town and uh, or, or I don't give them money and then they'll just desert me anyway and tell the press. And that's his fixation with the Belgian press is is quite remarkable and, and w- would dog him for ev- even when he was out in the Antarctic. Um, and so, yes, it, this led to um, one a uh, fateful night in in Punta Arenas when uh, several uh, sailors i believe it was uh, four belgians and one very impressionable norwegian under their influence uh just didn't come home and and uh were you know painted the town red and it was already a quite a, a bibulous town it was uh, people were it was qu- well known for uh for alcohol consumption. They served alcohol uh, in church and not just for communion. And uh, they, there were houses built out of wine bottles uh, and uh, they took full advantage of it, the, 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 the uh, rebellious Belgian sailors. I guess the last straw was when they tried to take their, um, their official Belgica, uh, uh, I guess, clothing. They, they had uh, emblazoned caps and and uh, some quite some quite fetching clothing. Uh, they tried to take that with them, and then uh, Dujarlash could apparently uh, tolerate a uh, insubordination, but he couldn't tolerate theft. And so then he put his foot down, and that's when it, it came to uh, a confrontation that that uh, in, involving uh, armed standoffs, and um, it, it was almost certain to lead to mutiny. I mean, Dujarlash had knew enough about uh, the, the the history of a seafaring adventure that he knew that if once it, once the the one sailor commands more authority than the than the captain then all bets are off and it was it had come to that point and so then he raised a literal red flag uh, to call for the uh, Chilean port authority and uh, navy who came to his rescue uh, but that also meant dismissing uh, four belgian sailors 
leaving a minority of Belgians on the expedition. Um, and another consequence of that is that one of the men that he uh, that he kicked off the ship was the cook. And he had only become the cook because he had beat the living daylights out of the previous cook who, and who had been kicked off the ship. And it was just really a, a farce on, on the way down. Uh, but it had deadly consequences because the man that they replaced him with uh, for an entrusted kitchen duties to was a well-meaning but culinarily inept uh, cabin boy. And the fact that he could not, uh, they could not make a, a, an edible meal to save his life uh, actually became quite, uh, quite disastrous because uh, out in the Antarctic, these, when the sun goes down for weeks on end, uh, when there is nothing in the environment to delight the eye, the only thing that the men would look forward to were meals. And um, he was un- incapable of, of, uh, uh, of creating something that they, would, uh, that they would enjoy. In fact, they got I- incredibly tired of it. And uh, that it added to the monotony and to the depression they were already feeling and, and to uh, the, the mental instability. Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, it also, to to say nothing of the nutritional deficiencies that the canned food was, was causing. And before we come on to food and issues to do with food in more detail, I think it would be good if we could discuss how, how they do end up trapped in the ice. So they leave Punta Arenas, they sail down to Antarctica. Um, but why is it that de Galache is determined to stay in the ice, to drive into the pack ice, and keeps it from the rest of his crew? That's the, the important question. He, by his own admission, um, it was something that he just couldn't resist. He saw, as I mentioned, he, had the, he was faced with this dilemma of coming home more or less empty-handed, you know, with, with a few scientific discoveries that are not to be sniffed at, but but certainly nothing that would um, that would excite the public on the level of of uh, uh, the South Magnetic Pole, uh, or um, when he saw that a storm had opened up leads into the ice that were uh, that were avenues to the south into the pack ice, um, he was all of a sudden given the opportunity to sail south. And um, for an explorer, that was something that is just what, what he lived for, this idea of seeing what lay beyond. Uh, and possibly he thought that he might reach land eventually and determine um, the, the the contours of the Antarctic continent, determine if it, if it even was a continent. At that point, it, that wasn't known. It, it, it was suspected by some that it could also be an ocean of ice, the way the Arctic is. So he, he did believe that there might be some something to discover there he, and that he might reach a southern, uh, a record southern latitude, uh, an, another notch on the belt that many explorers would, would, uh, would, would dream of. Um, but I think he also believed that if he did, as, as is very likely, uh, get caught in the ice, a fate that most explorers uh, uh, avoided at all costs for good reason, because it had led to the destruction of several ships, some very famous uh, instances, um, but but for him, this possibility was actually quite uh, tempting because it would ensure another kind of record. It would ensure that he and his men would be the first to endure an Antarctic winter. And so if he couldn't reach the South Magnetic Pole, he would at least come back with a harrowing tale that would excite the public. And uh, there there is uh, a history in Antarctic exploration of or rather of, of exploration in general. That, that the Expeditions that go well tend not to be remembered as much as uh, expeditions in which things go wrong. So, of course, if things went terribly wrong and they were never heard from again, no one would know. But if things went wrong and they happened to survive it, then that would uh, be even more exciting to many than the attainment of, of the South Magnetic Pole. Uh, so that with that I believe he uh, he doesn't explain it quite so uh, bluntly, but I do believe that uh, he thought that this that that this this gambit would uh, would pay off in some way or another, unless it ended up uh, spelling their doom, which it very nearly did. And for any listeners that aren't aware, what is the danger of sailing into the pack ice? What can pack ice do to a ship? Pack ice. Uh, can crush a ship the way a boa constrictor 
crushes its prey and then swallow it whole and leave nothing uh, where the ship once was, except for maybe a few splinters. Uh, that's what happened to the Endurance, uh, Shackleton's ship, years later. Uh, and uh, Shackleton had, was, was fortunate enough to, to escape um, and, uh, and to cross over the, uh, the uh, Bransfield Strait to, to safety in, in a remarkable adventure. But there were many uh, ships that weren't so lucky. Uh, the, the Franklin expedition to the uh, Arctic in the 1840s, two of the ships were also caught in the ice. And the uh, while they weren't crushed, they were all, they were secluded. They were they were unable to move, and the men were were stranded and uh, went hungry and died of of uh, cold and starvation, or, or at least we think so. We never found most of them, um, and uh, there's also evidence that they might have um, that they might have uh, resorted to cannibalism. So these are stories that the certainly of the Franklin expedition, the Jeanette expedition, another one in um, in in the um, off of the Alaskan coast, also a ship crushed by ice because the pressures build to such an extent that uh, the, the the ice has nowhere to go and has and crushes anything that's in its way. Uh, Dujarlash would have heard of this too, and so this is an, another cautionary tale that he somehow uh, didn't heed and um, or, or thought that somehow this fate wouldn't wouldn't befall the Belgica, but but it quite nearly did, and in fact that throughout the entire. Uh, experience, their, their entire time in the ice, which was more than a year, the ice were was constantly grinding against the ship, making uh, ch- chilling noises, all, uh, making the, the the timbers of the ship groan in pain, and uh, leading the men inside to fear for their lives every second of the day. So I'm imagining that the crew didn't take it that well when they found out they were trapped in the pack ice with no escape. That's probably why. Uh, De Jalash didn't tell them. Uh, he had, before making this decision, he had uh, gathered the officers in the uh, in the wardroom to ask them what they would think about a wintering in the ice. Clearly, it was on his mind, and they all refused. They all were against against this. Uh, they claimed that it uh, the reason they were against it was because it would sacrifice the um, the, the scientific. Uh, a bounty that they had collected in the in the Antarctic Peninsula that it, that it would uh, their collections would be at risk. But in fact, they were more they were less afraid for their collections. They were afraid for their lives. And um, when he did make the dis- when he did sail into the south, obviously they saw that they were going into the ice. But it could have been justified at that time. And in fact, he did justify it by saying that the reason that he sailed into the ice was it was to avoid the uh, the terrible storm that had opened up these avenues in the ice and that that it was the further he went into the ice the less power the waves had at the because they were they would have been dampened by by the ice uh that sure that that is uh, true but there was no re- need for him to go as many miles as he did into the ice for that effect uh to to uh to occur and in fact, when when they woke up one morning and found themselves uh, surrounded by whiteness to 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 every horizon, and found that they were that they were stuck and and would be for the foreseeable future, uh, there was a, a tremendous uproar on on board, and um, and he was blamed all around. Even even though he had also secured the uh, the uh, I guess the acquiescence of the captain. Who had agreed to, uh, to 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 follow a southern route, but at first they didn't want to admit it. They they kept the the engines running, supposedly to go back north as soon as the ice, if ever the ice were to break up and allow them to. But um, in fact, it was to go further south. Um, and at first they lied to the to the um, crew by telling them that they were making northern progress and that they would soon be at the fringes of the ice and back to safety. It's unclear why they said that because they were making southern progress and it would be quite evident that they're, uh, you know, after a few weeks that they would not be anywhere close to safety. Um, and, and so this uh, discovery uh, definitely set the tone uh, for the rest of the, uh, for the rest of the, the their imprisonment in the ice and, uh, and I, I guess undermined uh, Dujarlash's credibility to some extent. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
Uh, unlike his, unlike the, the the previous instance I mentioned, who threatened murder, he feared murder uh, almost at the hands of, of of every single one of his shipmates. He had no memory of embarking on the ship. He had no idea where he was, and he would sleep at night in the freezing hold among the rats, um, rather than than uh, sleep in the in the in the forecastle. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And as winter sets in, it brings eternal night, freezing temperatures, just incredibly unpleasant conditions for everyone on board. And what are the, the mental and physical side effects of being on the ice in the winter? Well, it depends uh, who uh, who we're talking about. I mean, these days, many of the people who go on extended uh, uh, winterings or, 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 or who, who are on the Antarctic year-round in bases uh, or um, even on the uh, there was, in the Arctic, there was a, recently a, a, an ice-bound expedition, um, to, it, intentionally ice-bound expedition to study uh, the, the, the Arctic year-round. Um, even in modern circumstances, people uh, are severely affected by the dark and the cold. Uh, the dark is something akin to seasonal affective disorder. It causes depression. It can cause uh, hormonal imbalances that themselves can uh, can have uh, effects on cognition. On uh, can cause vertigo. Can cause headaches. Uh, can cause a sort of listlessness is something called known as the Antarctic stare, which is a uh, a twelve yard stare in a ten yard room where you're just sort of looking off into emptiness. And all of these things affected the men of the Belgica, except they 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 definitely experienced it to a uh, far greater degree than than uh, almost any other expedition since. Um, and so there was something else going on. There was, I think, the part of the part of the problem was that the crew was. Uh, so haphazardly assembled, they there was no uh, psychological screening for adaptability to this. There was, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people joined in order to escape problems back home and, and uh, didn't really know what they were getting uh, themselves into. So yeah, I've, I've I've mentioned those problems, the the uh, purely physiological problems, but there were also problems of of fear and uh, despair. Uh, monotony uh, and also a breakdown in in uh, in their morale and um and and even led some men to the uh, to the brink of insanity and and a few actually tipped over into madness as for the physical effects 
there, as, as I mentioned, the hormone imba- hormonal imbalances, the, 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 it's called the, the winter over syndrome, also known as the polar T3 syndrome, which refers to a certain thyroid hormone, which is affected by, which regulates, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the workings of the body and is affected by cold and light, uh, temperature and light. And so it's understandable why the, the, these, this extreme environment would have, uh, had some effect on that. In addition to that, uh, there was, the, I mentioned the nutritional deficiencies. Uh, there was certainly a deficiency in vitamin C. These men were suffering from scurvy, even though the cook, the, the aforementioned uh, Dr. Frederick Cook, uh, observed what he saw as an unmistakable signs of scurvy, even though he did not want to mention it because that, that would also that would deplete what little morale there was left. And it's it's uh, though I don't get into this in the book, it's it's pretty certain that they also suffered from a vitamin uh, deficiency known as berry berry disease, which causes some some symptoms similar to um, the ones that they experienced. But at that time. Um, scurvy was an all-encompassing word, or definitely a broader term than it is today. And um, either way, Cook uh, fig- tried to confront this crisis without any of the known uh, anti-scorbutic, which means scurvy-fighting cures. Um, it had been discovered that scurvy was a, a, a nutritional deficiency years before in the 18th century. The uh, uh, the Royal Navy surgeon James Lind had had uh, uh, discovered that uh, f- fresh citrus juice for uh, it was was one of the the uh, best um, cures for for scurvy. And since then, the the the, the Royal Navy had uh, uh, given lemon juice to sailors. And then, as uh, as the nineteenth century uh, uh, went on, replaced them with cheaper but less effective lime juice. And then that lime juice, uh, fresh lime juice, led to even cheaper bottled lime juice, which is what the Belgica had on board. It had thought to, it had been thought to be a disease of the past at that point, uh, be, but that is only because uh, ocean voyages were much shorter thanks to the steam engine, and so there was no. Uh, it wasn't quite clear how ineffective bottled lime juice actually was, but since the uh, men of the Belgica were stuck in the ice for three months, longer than most ocean-going voyages at that time. That was more than enough time for the deficiency to set in. And um, Cook had to improvise. He had to figure out something else uh, in order to, because to, scurvy is will inevitably lead to death unless it is it is combated. Uh, the the human humans do not secrete their own vitamin C. So uh, Cook had the, the I think I consider the genius intuition to think back to his travels in Greenland among the Inuit. And he realized that the Inuit don't have any access to fresh fruit, fruit and vegetables or other known uh, anti-scorbutics. Um, however, they didn't suffer from scurvy. And so he reasoned that there must be something in the Inuit diet of fresh meat that combats scurvy. And so he prescribed a uh, a diet of exclusive consisting exclusively of fresh penguin and seal meat and eaten as raw as possible in the Inuit fashion. And those who were able to stomach it, uh, given the, the uh, culinary ineptitude of the cook, uh, many didn't, but those who did, uh, saw their scurvy symptoms, uh, uh gradually, d- uh, uh, disappear. And, um, th- that led to a, uh, that led Cook to become one of the, the, the most popular man aboard. Um, it, that was only one of his many, many interventions, but it was, it was uh, a, 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 an incredible intuition. And at first, Dujarilash re, re, uh, refused to do it, which is another baffling decision of his because he ended up suffering more than anyone. And Cook also comes up with this treatment called a baked treatment. The baking treatment, which is essentially a rudimentary form of light therapy, um, and in fact, probably the, the the first known use of light therapy. Light therapy is used today to combat, uh, as I mentioned, I mentioned seasonal affective disorder, the sense of depression that comes from extended darkness. Uh, it, it's believed today uh, that um, exposure to full spectrum light can reverse some of these symptoms or at least mitigate them. And in um, 120 years ago, Cook 
didn't have access to that kind of light, but he did have access to uh, a, a coal-burning stove. And he believed that that was the best substitute for the sun. He had come to revere the sun in its absence. He came to believe that the 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 human body stores sunlight and needs sunlight as much as plants do. This is something that also came from his experience among the Inuit and um, his his interpretation of their their belief system. And so since he couldn't bring the Belgica to the sun, in a way he brought the sun to the Belgica by having the men stand naked in front of the uh, this roaring fire uh, for long stretches of time. And sure enough, it, it, it did seem to uh, uh, to boost their morale. Now, it's unclear whether the the light that, that could emanate from a fire could reach, uh, could, could have the same effect as the full spectrum uh, UV light that is used in phototherapy today. But uh, certainly he was on the right track. And uh, Probably more importantly, there was a placebo effect at play that that they they trusted Cook and and um, saw that he that he was trying to do something, and that was more important than anything. That uh, that he he did everything he could to keep up a uh, a um, to keep the spirits high, and he reminds me in many ways of uh, Jack Nicholson's character in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where uh, everybody has has sort of given into despair, and there's one person who tries everything, who tries to rip the sink out uh, for, of the floor and throw it through the window. And even though he can't, at least he tried. Um, and so, and, and it, it uh, emboldens everybody around him. And I think without him, it's, it's, it's certain that they, they would never have, have survived the winter. And, um, and as, as I make clear later in the book, they also certainly wouldn't have escaped the ice, which is another, uh, some, another one of his interventions that proved life-saving, is to insist that they at least try. Before we come on to how they eventually do leave the ice, you mentioned in one of your previous answers that the men do succumb to madness. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, there were uh, many of the men actually felt that they were going mad, whether or not they were. Uh, they they uh, one the the Polish geologist said you know said we are in a madhouse. Uh, the the area around the ship that Cook. Uh, had had flattened so that to allow the men to to walk around get some exercise was known as the madhouse promenade um their diaries show uh, that no matter what they say how, how much of a, a sort of a placid exterior uh they try to project that they, they were tormented in in uh inside and uh, they they did feel like they were disoriented they felt uh, confused a lot of the time that's not quite madness but it, it shows uh a a sense of uh, destabilization that was pretty widespread. But there were cases that were much more serious of, of actual psychosis. One man at one point, and this is after the return of the sun, when things were supposed to be getting better, but frequently that's when the worst symptoms uh, occur. It's known as the uh, third quarter syndrome. When you think that you're, you're already, uh, that you already realize that, that the whole half of your, of the, of the year has already gone by and things haven't gone better. Um, so one day, a Belgian sailor passes a note to another saying, I can't hear, I can't speak. And uh, this was quite alarming to, to, this, to his, uh, his shipmate. So he went to Frederick Cook, who examined him and found that there was nothing wrong with his ears or his vocal cords, that the problem was in his mind. Uh, and this was a, a hysterical crisis. He was eventually able to, uh, a few days later, to recover his speech. But as soon as he did speak, all he could speak about was wanting to murder uh, one of his shipmates. And uh, in fact, his, the, the first engineer who was his boss. And uh, he, was, he had to be watched constantly. Um, and that also led to a, a, a widespread fear across the ship that uh, if, you know, though he, though he um, threatened to murder his, his uh, superior, what would prevent him from changing his mind and, and killing someone else? Uh, so he, that, that uh, was, was greatly unsettling. A few weeks later, uh, an even more serious case of psychosis uh, revealed itself. A Norwegian sailor this time uh, became incredibly paranoid and uh, would, would, was so fearful of his shipmates 
uh, unlike his, unlike the, the the previous instance I mentioned, who threatened murder, he feared murder uh, almost at the hands of, of of every single one of his shipmates. He had no memory of embarking on the ship. He had no idea where he was, and he would sleep at night in the freezing hold among the rats, um, and, rather than than uh, sleep in the in the in the forecastle, uh, because he was so afraid of of, uh, of being killed. Uh, the rats, I should say, were the only creatures that were thriving on, in the pack, and they 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 multiplied, and uh, and they they had come on board in Punta Arenas, and then they they had uh, colonized the entire uh, the entire hold, and, and and as well as the machinery, and the sounds of them squeaking at night just was was something that contributed to this feeling of widespread madness. There's, there's some gothic details I read in the diaries about uh, the, the madness of this Norwegian sailor. He supposedly um, would write letters to his fiance and mail them in a hummock of ice, which is a, a, a sort of a, a mound of ice uh, in which they're, they're, that, that to him resembled a mailbox. He would slip these letters into this hummock of ice and his shipmates uh, would take the letters out in order to let him believe that they had been mailed. Um, and, and I just found that so chilling when I read that. Um, and he never recovered his reason, though. Though it's not, I, it's not too much of a spoiler to say that uh, some men survived, because uh, obviously, if they hadn't, I wouldn't have had much to base my research on. But um, they, he did survive, and uh, he never recovered his reason. He was registered for the rest of his life in an insane asylum outside of uh, Oslo, and um, uh, which, which was speaking of uh, the cuckoo's nest, was uh, also would later become quite. Uh, notorious for for using controversial experimental techniques such as lobotomies. So it's it is. I'm not. I don't know that he ever got one. But still, it, it was quite chilling to find out that um, his the madness that uh, that plagued him in the pole uh, remained with him for the rest of his long life. So how did the men manage to escape Antarctica? How did they get out of the ice? Cook, who would later become quite infamous for claiming to have reached the North Pole. Uh, which was a pure fabrication, claiming to have reached the summit of uh, Mount of Denali, the tallest mountain in North America, another fabrication, and uh, being imprisoned for ten years uh, or seven years in uh, Leavenworth uh, Penitentiary for running a Ponzi scheme, is is remembered today, if he's remembered at all, as one of the great hucksters uh, in American uh, history, and yet this this sense of uh, Deception, delusion, uh, trickery, also had its. Uh, th- th- there's an, another side to that coin, which was a great sense of optimism, and an ability to convince people. And it was th- those characteristics that that uh, led him to be um, a, a, a hero and a legitimate hero in the Belgica. So as, as as much of an anti-hero as he was later, he was the exact opposite of that on the ice. And that's another. Uh, another dynamic that drew me to this story. And uh, you, you asked how they uh, were able to escape the ice. Well, it's, it's, they were in a sense conned by Cook into thinking that that was even a possibility. He believed that the crew was not in any shape to survive another winter in the ice. And yet as the summer sun came, the flow that contained them did not shrink at all. And so it seemed quite likely that they were doomed to spend another winter, um, which, which Cook was certain would, would spell their death. And so he insisted that they try to break out. Uh, he was met with laughter uh, in the wardroom. It was as if he had suggested that they flap their arms and fly away. Uh, they were surrounded by uh, a, a, a flow of ice that was hundreds of meters in every direction and uh, 28 feet thick in places. And they only had three uh, small ice saws and sh- a couple shovels and pickaxes. There was really no way that they could that they could fight this, or so they thought. And yet Cook, like McMurphy, the Jack Nicholson character in, in Cuckoo's Nest, um, throws himself into the work. He believes, he starts digging trenches. And uh, believing that the the sun, which as I mentioned, he revered um, and, and and ascribed supernatural powers to, he believed that the if he dug trenches that were deep enough, 
uh, from the bow of the ship to the open water, that the sun would be able to reach the lowest, uh, the deepest levels of the ice and, and melt the flow along that seam and hopefully break it and allow the ship to escape. His plan was, uh, was informed by poor, a poor understanding of physics. There was uh, no way that could have worked for, for, for various reasons. But seeing the determination with which he dug and, uh, and the passion with which he, he threw himself into the work uh, inspired uh, the other men to think, well, maybe it is possible. Maybe there, there is something we can do. Because uh, even though Cook's plan hadn't worked, it got everybody outside. It got everybody working. It got everybody using their muscles. Um, got, it got people starting to eat again uh, to, and to eat penguin meat, uh, crucially. Uh, which which was uh, very beneficial to their health, and so that's at the point where that's the point where uh, De Jorlache redeems himself for the his disastrous decision to have sailed into the ice, and he believes he he comes alive at this point, and he says, "Well, if we if Cook's plan didn't work, then maybe we try something even more ambitious. We try sawing our way, sawing an actual canal uh, from the ship to the open water, and." That required sawing essentially through a mile's worth of ice because you had to saw each bank of the canal, saw the the sections in between, uh, some of which were the size of a football field, and uh, clear them from the ice, and then constantly saw as as the canal the pressure that uh, uh, that's pressing against the flow of ice from the other from the the rest of the pack would close this canal uh, constantly. So you had to it was it was. Uh, a Sisyphean work to to keep on reopening this this uh, this canal as as uh, that was constantly pressured to to close back up. But eventually, with a little bit of luck and and, and a, a good number of explosives, they were able to uh, escape through the canal and and barrel through a wall of ice. Um, they were they were uh, stuck fast again uh, shortly after, but further north, where the sun actually did have some effect, and and uh, eventually they they you know struggled and wriggled their way through the ice and and uh, and found their way to freedom, um, but uh, at the cost of of several lives and and the sanity of several men and the the actually the the, uh, the uh, damage. Of the Antarctic um, followed them into followed them to Europe. De Gerlache was 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 plagued with uh, neurological uh, problems and headaches for several years, and uh, and a, and a few men uh, uh, died thereafter as a direct consequence of their time in the ice. So it was uh, just it, it's as if the 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 ghosts of the Antarctic had remained with them and had followed them back to Europe, which is quite haunting. That was Julian Sancton. His book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night, is published by WH Allen and is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Professor Nicholas Orme will be answering your questions on the church in medieval England. <laughs>